Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. My apologies, first of all, for our break being a week longer than planned. It turns out that jet lag after nearly 24 hours on planes is no joke. Who knew? Anyway, while I was swanning about Paris and London, I had the opportunity to see some truly excellent museums, which is, of course, what all the cool kids do on their vacations. The British Museum, the Musée d'Orsay, and a few others, all amazing in their own ways. But the one I got the most excited about was the Musée de Cluny. The Musée de Cluny is the French National Medieval Museum. Now, I went in knowing the comparative lack of attention the Merovingian period gets. After all, French medieval history is long, and many dramatic and interesting things happened in it. But even with purposefully low expectations, I was somewhat disappointed. Don't get me wrong, the museum was well laid out, the exhibits fascinating and well presented, but the lack of attention the Merovingian period received was crazy. In a museum of maybe 25 or 30 rooms, laid out in chronological order, the Merovingians only appeared in the first. And even then, they had to share the space with the Carolingians, as well as the other successor states, that were around what would become France. There were just as many Visigothic artifacts as Merovingian ones. Now, again, to be fair, the Merovingian material was fascinating, and the museum took time to highlight interesting things, like the unique metalworking the Franks were famous for. There was even a short blurb about Frédéric Moreau and his archaeological digs around Soissons in the 1880s, which produced many important Merovingian-area artifacts. But still, less than one room for over 200 years of Frankish history... For the origins of France, it was a bit saddening. But it reminded me of the importance of discussing this period, even if it's just in our little podcast. I'm of the opinion that all history is important for understanding our world and how it came to be. That means a book about World War II, or the thousandth biography of George Washington, are important but so are the understudied parts of history, like the Merovingians. So let's keep up what we've been doing. Last time, we talked about some naughty bishops, discussed the complicated position of the Pope, and watched Chilperic entirely fail to style himself as an old-school Frankish warrior king. This week, we're going to talk a little bit about taxes, and discuss in more detail what kind of a king Chilperic was, and what kind of a ruler is a good ruler to historians. Now, Merovingian taxation has been mentioned in this series, but we haven't really focused on it. This is mostly because it hasn't really come up all that much in our narrative. Gaul was a rich area, and with the added income from plunder and conquests, the early Merovingian kings were pretty flush with cash. Tax was an important source of income. We can see that with the way the early kings divided the realm by cities to prioritize an equal distribution of tax revenue. But the collection of those taxes 
could afford to be a little haphazard, as Merovingian courts were small, and their biggest expense, the army, largely paid for itself. So it is no coincidence that Chilperic is the one to change this, as he represents a shift in the priorities of Merovingian kings. While he may have been cosplaying as a warrior king, at his heart, Chilperic was an administrator and a politician. As we've seen, his strength as a ruler was always his mind. His ability to politic and manipulate situations was what had saved him time and time again from Sigebert's wrath, and his nuanced use of law in the trial of Praetextatus shows how he effectively utilised his intellect in difficult situations. Of course, he wasn't above using force, but he was a new kind of Merovingian king, one that sought to bend the rules to their will, rather than simply bulldoze through them. This depiction of Chilperic is important. I feel like so far we've been straying into the danger zone of portraying the king as a petty, jealous coward. This is understandable, since Gregory pushes this image as often as he feels safe to. But it isn't wholly accurate. Removing ourselves from Gregory's prejudice and looking at Chilperic and Guntram with fresh eyes allows us to see how, between the two of them, they were a break from the past and a precursor of how the kingdoms would function under the later Merovingians. Guntram, with his focus on consensus building and symbolic power, especially later in his reign, alongside Chilperic with his use of legal authority and court power, mark an important turning point. Gregory may not like it, and may constantly remind the reader of his nostalgia for the violent autocrats that came before, but these two men together represent the future of Merovingian kingship. And this will come up more and more in future episodes. I'm bringing all of this up because there is a specific story Gregory presents of Chilperic's new taxes causing a riot. Gregory frames the story as the king overstepping and angering the people, implying that it was his greed motivating him. But I feel this is a little unfair. With modern historical context, we know that rulers who attempt to centralize power and make their government more efficient tend to be slandered by history, as those who record their actions largely come from the rich, noble classes who benefit from weaker government. A classic example of this is the Roman Emperor Domitian. Domitian is traditionally considered one of the worst tyrants Rome ever had, a megalomaniac up there with Caligula and Nero. But some modern historians have recently been attempting a thoughtful re-evaluation of Domitian. Much like Chilperic, Domitian inherited a loose system of government based on tradition and a light administrative touch enforced by thinly veiled military autocracy. The powers were vague, the system inefficient, 
and the strains on the state were growing. And there was a large, powerful, noble class that not only benefited from this state of affairs and the traditionally restrained powers of the emperor, they also wrote all of the histories. Sound familiar to anything in the Merovingian period? Any particular Gallo-Roman noble son writing the only major history we have of the period? Anyway, the similarities between Domitian and Chilperic continue. Like Domitian, Chilperic ruled from a position previously defined by its lax attitude towards governance and preoccupation with expansion and other military matters. And, like Domitian, Chilperic was simply attempting to change that, not by inventing new powers, but by utilizing a fuller extent of the powers he already had. The Merovingians had always wielded supreme authority. Chilperic was simply using this authority to govern more judiciously. When Gregory describes Chilperic's new taxes, he uses terms like punitive and extremely heavy. But how out of the ordinary were these taxes really? Chilperic was likely working at least partially off of existing Roman tax records, since the Merovingians did not have the bureaucracy capable of assessing the vast amount of lands and people they owned. Granted, late Roman taxes were harsh, but they were also mostly avoided by the richer citizens who left the burden largely to the less fortunate. With this in mind, if someone were to properly enforce these taxes, it would likely cause a stir from among the nobles, some of whom had been avoiding these taxes since before the barbarians had crossed the Rhine and Rome's power was undisputed. Add on to that, nearly a hundred years of slow Merovingian neglect and humanity's general dislike of paying taxes, and it's more than enough to explain a tax riot and Gregory's negative portrayal of the situation. Now, to be fair, we must obviously present the other side, not only to be balanced, but also because the truth is usually found somewhere in the middle. The examples Gregory gives us do sound terrible. So terrible, they might be exaggerations, possibly, but even if partially true, they certainly aren't good. He talks of people leaving their land to escape the heavy taxes, and even informs us that a landowner had to pay five gallons of wine for every half acre they possessed. He also describes something that sounds a lot like a poll or head tax, i.e. a tax on people rather than land or income. Together this paints a bleak and harsh picture of the environment, setting the stage for the riots in Limoges where the mob tries to kill Chilperic's tax collector, who was then saved, luckily, by the bishop of the city, Ferolius. Chilperic then takes revenge on the city with brutal reprisals and blames the churchmen for inciting the tax riot. Obviously, these stories are bad, and there is no way of being 100% sure that they aren't the truth. But there are a few key things to remember. First, Gregory hates Chilperic, obviously. 
Second, all of the examples of heavy taxation Gregory uses fit with old Roman taxation methods. During the rampant inflation of the late empire, taxes were often demanded in goods, with quotas much like the wine quota Gregory describes here. Land and poll taxes were also common, with Roman aristocrats often hiding their serfs from the taxmen in order to pay less or avoid having their workers drafted into the army. With these in mind, it seems less like Chilperic is inventing new taxes and more like he is enforcing the old tax laws effectively for the first time in a while. Third, the chaotic warfare and rival courts could explain much of the people moving or being forced off of their land. Warfare tends to do this. Fourth, Gregory has a personal vendetta against taxes, making protecting the people of Tours from any taxation a major part of his political conflicts. And fifth, the church was both a repository for massive amounts of wealth, a powerful political entity that, previously, enjoyed relative neglect from kingly oversight, and incredibly influential with the people, meaning it is not actually out of the realm of possibility that they may have had a hand in starting these anti-tax riots. Now, torturing townsfolk and churchmen is never okay behaviour, but with the proper context and knowledge, you can see why I am a little suspicious of Gregory's presentation of the facts. It's easy to be anti-tax. If there is one thing we share with our historical ancestors, it's a healthy dislike of paying taxes. But taxes are how society functions, and efficient and effective taxation is the mark of a robust society, even today. Granted, today's taxes tend to go towards hospitals and roads rather than Chilperic's courtiers and his endless civil wars, but still. It is worth remembering that Chilperic may not have been just a vain and greedy man. He may have been genuinely attempting reforms to strengthen his kingdom. This interpretation is supported by some of his actions we see through Gregory's histories. We'll talk about some of the legal and political innovations in later episodes, because they also concern the other kings of the time. But even just his intellectual endeavours show a different side to Chilperic. He wrote poetry, tried to reform the Latin language by adding some Greek letters, built amphitheatres, and even tried his hand at church reform by messing with the Trinity and church doctrine. Gregory mocks all of these pursuits viciously, but his attacks ring a little hollow when one actually considers them one by one. The building of amphitheatres can be dismissed as expensive vanity projects, but it is a clear attempt to invoke Roman archetypes, which Gregory loved when Clovis was the one doing it. Gregory also detests Chilperic's attempts to meddle in church doctrine, mocking his theological arguments as ignorant and heretical. But Constantine had also meddled in church affairs. Many Roman rulers had, and many, many people, 
disagreed with Gregory's interpretations at the time as well. So how silly was this attempt, really? Even Charlemagne would later try to legislate on theology, just like Chilperic was attempting here. And speaking of Charlemagne, Gregory laughs at Chilperic's attempt to change the Latin alphabet to make it more workable, but Charlemagne's so-called Carolingian Renaissance would be famous for its reforms to the Latin language, which paved the way for the development of the more common Romance languages. And Chilperic's poetry? Well, that might have sucked. We can't be sure. But hey, at least he's trying, right? Better than killing more people in unneeded wars of conquest, surely. Now, I know it sounds like I've suddenly become a Chilperic fanboy, and I promise I haven't. But I'm hoping these examples and discussions show alternatives to the traditional narrative. Gregory's characterization of these main figures of his time, while complex and endlessly fascinating, are limited by his perspective. It is always worth remembering that they were real people with their own motivations, and we are hearing about them largely through the words of a single, fallible man. And Gregory has a penchant for drama and exaggeration. Now, this episode has focused on Chilperic, but it is worth noting that to some degree, Guntram and later Childebert II will also show important signs of reform and change. If the late Merovingian kings are known for anything, it's their roles as mediators and judges in disputes. Their most important task by far was building a broad consensus in the realm between the nobles in order to maintain its stability. They are a far cry from the early Merovingians like Clovis and Clothar, so it is important to note the gradual transition between the two. And spoiler alert, it will be the next generation of Merovingian kings after this current one who will mark the shift between the middle and the late Merovingian periods. Thus, it is important to note the changes that are happening in this period as they foreshadow the new system that is to come. Chilperic, Guntram, and Childebert are key figures in this transition, and we will talk more about it in future episodes. We're going to leave it there for this week. If I could assign some homework, which I promise I won't do too much, I'd like to ask everyone to think about the discussion we had today. Ask yourself, what figures in history might have fallen victim to this type of character assassination we have discussed? Domitian and Chilperic are far from the first and far from the last. Many rulers throughout history have been unfairly attacked for attempting unpopular but necessary reforms. Next week will be very different from our calm discussion of historical trends, with tales of natural disaster, death and devastation, and the tragedy of a family ripped apart by death and grief. See you then.